Recovery Elevator, episode 114. I actually find that I, I have a lot more fun sober because I can remember it and I'm not as sloppy as I was. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for two years, six months, two weeks, and one day. On today's podcast, we've got Coral. She's 32 years old from Idaho and has been sober since August 28th, 2016. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. One of my favorite recovery books is Beyond the Influence by Katherine Ketchum. On January 1st, 2010, I plopped myself into a chair in the Barnes & Noble store at Northgate Mall in Seattle, and by luck, I pulled this book off the shelf. I was hungover. I was sweating, I was withdrawing from alcohol, I was listening to the Owl's City soundtrack, not by choice, but that was what seemed to be the Barnes & Noble soundtrack for the years 2010, 11, and 12, and I started to read. I find myself pulling this book off the shelf two to three times per month. I continue to highlight segments in it. It's a really great book. I highly recommend you pick up a copy. If you do plan to pick up a copy, pick it up at recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. You can also go to recoveryelevator.com and you will find this book in the recommended resources on the front page and on the resources page. I'd like to talk about the genetic predisposition that alcoholics have towards alcohol. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the stigma. For hundreds, even thousands of years, people have argued loud and long that alcoholism is a shameful personal weakness, a stubborn character defect, or a symptom of some underlying moral disorder. Alcoholics, because they choose their fate, unlike the innocent victims of epilepsy, heart disease, or cancer, rank low in the moral order. Despite stunning advances in our understanding of the genetics and neurophysiology of alcoholism, Most people continue to believe that alcoholism is a disease of morals, a preventable psychological weakness. In 1979, a survey was conducted. 67% of 2,187 respondents insisted that alcoholism is a sign of personal emotional weakness. Only 19% believe that alcoholism is solely a health problem. A 1998 survey by the San Francisco-based Recovery Institute reveals that our attitudes towards alcoholics have not changed significantly over the years. The survey, which is based on telephone and one-on-one interviews with more than 2,000 people, concludes, Most people see alcoholism as having elements of both disease and weakness. On average, fewer than one in four say it is 100% disease, while a majority of every group surveyed, except psychiatrists and counselors, say they consider alcoholism to be at least 25% due to moral weakness. 
Not surprisingly, counselors would say that 70% of this is disease, 20% weakness, and then psychiatrists feel that it's 77% disease, 19% weakness, are most likely to accept alcoholism as a medical condition, while fundamentalist clergy, whoever the hell fundamentalist clergy people are, say that 31% of it is a disease and 69% of it a weakness. The shame and stigma associated with alcoholism have persisted, despite the fact that we know from hundreds of studies conducted by thousands of researchers that alcoholism is a progressive, physiological, genetically determined disease and not a moral or personal weakness. Over the past 60 years, roughly dating from the foundation of the Yale Center of Alcohol Studies in 1942, Neurologists, pharmacologists, genetics, biochemists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and most recently, addiction medicine specialists have amassed a broad assortment of research projects confirming the hereditary biochemical and neurophysiological nature of alcoholism. One of these researchers is pharmacologist Kenneth Bloom, who became interested in alcoholism in the late 1960s when he was working as an assistant research scientist in the Southwest Foundation for the Research and Education in San Antonio, Texas. Teaming up with psychopharmacologist Erwin Geller, Bloom began a series of experiments focusing on the nature of alcohol's actions on the nervous system. These early experiments, published in the 1970s, convinced Bloom that specific neurotransmitters such as serotonin, GABA, and dopamine are involved in alcohol preference. For the next decade, Bloom teamed up with researchers all over the world to conduct experiments designed to tease apart the mysteries of the neurological addiction. By the mid-1980s, Bloom found himself powerfully drawn to a field of research and we had no direct training, which is molecular genetics. Bloom was convinced that genes are involved in the craving for alcohol and the predisposition to alcoholism. He wanted to find out which specific genes were causing the problem. With newly discovered techniques such as pulse field gel electrophoresis and the southern blot analysis, that could be a good band name, researchers were able to identify specific chromosome markers for certain neurogenetic diseases, including Huntington's disease. Using these same tools, Bloom hoped to find specific genetic markers for the neurogenetic disease of alcoholism. There was no doubt in Bloom's mind that alcohol is a hereditary disease and not a sign of weak character. All you have to do is look at the hundreds of experiments conducted over more than five decades confirming the genetic link. Tampering with the genetic code of rodents, this is really cool guys, researchers were able to breed strains of rats and mice that loved the taste of alcohol and others that couldn't stand the stuff. They found that the DBA and C3H strains of mice, for example, consistently prefer water over alcohol when given a choice. While the C57 and C58 strains that were bred in the rats and mice will choose alcohol over water almost every time. Guess what happened to the offspring? The offspring of the alcohol-loving rodents inherit this fondness for booze, while the offspring of the alcohol-hating mice simply don't like the stuff. Now let's take a look at adoption. Adoption studies in humans also provided strong confirmation of the genetic link, that this is a hereditary disease and not a character or moral failing. In the early 1970s, University of Kansas psychiatrist Donald Goodwin and colleagues in America and Denmark published studies conducted with adopted children of alcoholics and non-alcoholics. Children with at least one alcoholic natural parent were three to four times likely to become alcoholics when adopted into non-alcoholic families than children whose natural parents were non-alcoholics. 
The old argument that alcoholics have underlying psychological or emotional disturbances, the so-called alcoholic personality, was debunked in these studies by the finding that adopted children whose natural parents included one or more alcoholics were no more likely to have a psychiatric disturbance than adopted children whose natural parents were non-alcoholics. So what I'm trying to conclude in this podcast episode is that alcoholism, being an alcoholic, is genetic. It's hereditary, that we have a genetic predisposition to becoming an alcoholic if we drink alcohol. And the degree of when we become an alcoholic depends, again, upon how much we drink and the genetic predisposition. There's a fantastic definition of what is alcoholism in the book Beyond the Influence, once again, by Catherine Ketchum. Let me read it for you guys. Alcoholism is a progressive neurological disease strongly influenced by genetic vulnerability. Inherited or acquired abnormalities in brain chemistry create an altered response to alcohol, which in turn causes a wide array of physical, psychological, and behavioral problems. Although environmental and social factors will influence the progression and expression of the disease, they are not in any sense causes of addictive drinking. I'm going to say that line one more time. Although environmental and social factors will influence the progression and expression of the disease, they are not in any sense causes of addictive drinking. The definition goes on to say, Alcoholism is caused by biochemical, neurophysiological abnormalities that are passed down from one generation to the next, or in some cases, acquired through heavy or prolonged drinking. So I'm torn, Recovery Elevator. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not a professional on this topic. I do, however, subscribe to the beliefs that this is a genetic disease. But then that last sentence, acquired through heavy or prolonged drinking, is a little baffling to me. Now, the thinking in This Naked Mind by Annie Grace is that everybody will become an alcoholic if they drink enough. And that last sentence in the definition, I think, says just that. Also, when I got a DUI in 2014, I had to take a DUI class. The booklet that they passed out says the same thing, and this is pedagogy that the government has approved. Basically, it said that everybody has the potential to become an alcoholic if they drink enough. Their genetic predisposition just determines when. Now, I've said this on the podcast before. I don't know which way to go. This book says about 10 to 12% of the people have this genetic makeup that when they drink, they'll become an alcoholic while the rest of the population does not. However, with the sentence acquired through heavy or prolonged drinking, that tells me that everybody will become an alcoholic if they drink enough. I have said in past episodes that binge drinking is the problem. In a previous episode, I mentioned that the rates of alcoholism are higher in northern European countries than they are in lower European countries due to the binge drinking factor. In fact, in the Mediterranean countries, people drink more. They drink more alcohol, however, the rates of alcoholism are lower. That is because binge drinking is the problem, and it's been proved that the people in the northern European countries binge drink more. They don't drink more alcohol, they just binge drink more. And binge drinking is heavy drinking and prolonged drinking. So maybe in our lifetime, they'll be able to tease out which exact genetic genes can lead to this. I don't know, that probably will happen. Hell, they might even be able to find a cure to this, but right now, they haven't. And right now, I'm just fine with that because the cure to this, in my opinion, does not come in the form of a tablet. It comes in the form of smiles, hugs, conversations, and hanging out with other like-minded individuals, aka a community. We cannot do this alone. Now, let me just expand a little bit more on how this is a neurological disease. 
The human brain is composed of billions of nerve cells or neurons, which are responsible for two major functions. Number one, sending messages to other neurons. And number two, receiving messages from other neurons. To send or receive messages, the brain relies on a system of specialized messenger chemicals called neurotransmitters. The most important neurotransmitters involved in alcoholism are dopamine, serotonin, neuropinephrine, and GABA. Dopamine intensifies feelings of well-being, increased aggression, alertness, and sexual excitement, and reduces compulsive behavior. Serotonin promotes feelings of well-being, induces sleep, reduces aggressive and compulsive behavior, and elevates the pain threshold. Norepinephrine increases feelings of well-being and reduces compulsive behavior in excess. Norepinephrine may induce anxiety and increase heart rate and blood pressure. GABA reduces anxiety and compulsive behavior and raises the pain threshold. So that's the short course on normal brain chemistry. Something different, however, happens in the alcoholic's brain. When an individual with a genetic predisposition to alcohol drinks, and remember, by definition, a genetic predisposition exists before the person ever takes the first drink. So strange and unusual events occur in the brain. The first part of this story begins with acetaldehyde, the metabolic byproduct of alcohol. Most alcoholics, even in the earliest stages of their drinking careers, experience a buildup of acetaldehyde leading to levels approximately 50% higher than in non-alcoholics. I'm not going to go into the full process of how the body digests alcohol, but an alcoholic, somebody with a predisposition to alcohol, their body digests and breaks down alcohol completely different. I've mentioned on previous podcast episodes that an alcoholic's body will deposit particles of THIQ in the brain. While a normal drinker, this doesn't happen. And it's these binge drinking episodes that lead to large deposits of THIQ in the brain. I hope you guys found that interesting. I absolutely love reading more about this stuff. And knowledge is not power unless we do something with it. If we know what our bodies do when drinking alcohol, we can better understand of what's happening and why we're alcoholics. Okay, now let's hear from Coral. Coral, how are you? Good, good. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Coral, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober since August 28th, 2016, so I will be hitting seven months in a couple more days, but right now it's seven months, months, so I'm not counting it. <laughs> I'm not counting my chickens before they hatch yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand that. Well, congratulations on seven months. That is fantastic. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, are you married, and what do you like to do for fun? Well, I am 32 years old. I live in Idaho, southeast Idaho. I work um, in an industrial plant, so kind of a like we make, we make fertilizer. I'm married. I have one son from a previous marriage. That's me. Nice. And you mentioned before this podcast episode, week before we started recording, that you got your kiddo off to school. What grade is your son in? He's in third grade. Nice. So what is he, eight years old? He is nine, actually. Nice. There we go. I bet that's a fun age. Now, let's He doesn't jump. hate me yet. <laughs> oh, does, doesn't hate you yet. It was, it was nine when I had those feelings towards my parents. Yeah. So you got about yeah, a year it's, left. It's Just getting kidding. there, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a big fear of mine, which is why I have a poodle, because as we were talking again, is dogs have unconditional love, and I don't think Ben is ever going to hate me, regardless if I'm drinking or I'm sober. And you have two dogs too, right? 
Yes, yes, I've got Snickers and Sprocket. So nice Sprocket. They're my furry children. Yes. <laughs> it just reminded me of the Saturday Night Live skits called Sprockets with I think it was Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley. Those were amazing. But I digress a little bit. Uh, let's jump right into things. Referencing the podcast title, when did you realize your elevator had reached its bottom and maybe it was time to quit drinking? I've had a few of those moments. So I think that the more recent one, like when I hit you know, six months ago, seven months ago, my husband and I were trying to conceive and we had been for quite a long time and we had gone in to try to do in vitro fertilization mm-hmm. and it had failed and uh, and I really took that out on myself that like I went into like I think about a two week long bender after that happened. I just hated myself and it didn't it didn't get any better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> drinking doesn't make it better <laughs> at all. I spent two weeks just wallowing in self-pity about that. And then, you know, finally I just had to look at myself and like, you know, it's not going to get better if you don't stop this. You know, this isn't going to help anything. So now was that a conversation that you had with yourself? Is it, or did you like look in the mirror or did you just realize it one day? No, it was a conversation. Well, it was a conversation that I had with myself for the last, like it probably lasted a couple of days of that conversation. Mm -hmm. And every time I, pick up a new beer or every morning then I'd get up and grab another beer first thing in the morning you know and you're like why are you doing this you know it's not gonna get this is not gonna solve anything so yeah it was not not a very happy time in my life but I would care to repeat at any time <laughs> yeah well here's the good news that we both know this that you realized that the alcohol was was not contributing to any source of happiness in your life and, and you left it. So congratulations with that. And how, how does it feel being almost seven months sober? Surreal. I did not think that I would be able to do it, honestly. Like I didn't, I didn't think that I would be able to quit for this long consecutively. How come? Why do you, why do you think you couldn't do it? Cause I really haven't done it before. I mean, even like in my pregnancy with my son and I'm not proud to admit this, but I would have an occasional glass of wine with him. I mean, I didn't go overboard and, you know, go get sloshed or go take shots at the gals, you know, but I would have, you know, a glass of wine on my birthday or drinking's just always been kind of drinking. And well, and I used marijuana when I was a kid a lot. I really just enjoyed the checking out factor of it, but it's always been, it's always been like a part of my life, you know? So I just never thought that like, putting it down 100% completely, don't touch, not even a sip, would ever be something that I could do for for a long time, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's definitely surreal. And once you get into, you know, recovery and everything, time goes by a little bit faster than just sitting there stagnant, like when you're not in a program. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even hardly feel like it's been seven months to me. It's, it's funny in early sobriety, the days went by so slowly, but the months went by mm-hmm. so fast and it, it just adds yeah. up before you know it when you're taking it one day at a time. And let's back it up a little bit more, you know, before you quit drinking on, on August 28th, 2016, let's back it up a little bit. When did you think you first realized that you might have a problem with alcohol? You know, like I said, there have been plenty of times in my life where I knew that I had a problem, but I think that in my own head, I would just be like, maybe it's time to slow down just a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But 
I've had definitely quite a few instances where it scared me, you know, my drinking scared me. And so I just kind of, like I said, I'd slow down. I mean, let's not get out of control and quit, you know, or anything, but <laughs> sure. But I definitely, definitely had a, a few of those instances. So, um, yeah. Were you able to slow down over a prolonged period of time? It sounds like, you know, the, let's slow down is another word for moderation. You know, what were your plans to slow down or to moderate your drinking and did they ever work? Well, they would work until they didn't, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I guess you're right. But yeah, I would, I would slow down basically like quit the hard liquor, you know, just let's drink beer, you know, let's not get crazy. <laughs> I would limit it to just drinking at night, not drinking during the day, even if it was football. I would, you know, I would try all crazy rules like that. No shots, just sit down and have a beer no more mixing, no more mixing wine with hard liquor, no more mixing wine with beer. I would try all sorts of things to try and slow down. And, and sometimes, you know, it would work. It would work for, I think, the longest I've ever been able to, quote, slow down, unquote, was a couple months, but then it would always come back. I, I'm just, you know, I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic, so I, I would never be able to do it for a long stretch of time. It would always get crazy again. So was it that a justification in your own mind? You would say to yourself, look, you know, like I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic. I should be mixing my Pinot Grigio with, with Jack Daniels. Like, is, is that the reason why you did that? Or? I would do that. I would do that. When I would be out drinking or on a bender, like, you know, I'd be out at the bar and we'd make jokes about like, no alcoholics go to meetings. And I mean, like, I'd been to meetings before, and I'd be like, no, recovering alcoholics go to meetings. I'm practicing, so I, this is okay. You know? This is what I do. <laughs> yeah, and I was, you know, I was drunk and everything, and so I thought I was totally being funny, but in actuality, it was making a joke out of a really dark situation, so, yeah. That's okay. Jokes about the dark situations, such as alcoholism on this podcast, are just fine because you need right. to bring humor into a serious situation. I feel like without the humor, the recovery component is really hard. And, and you know, so you, know, you said you mentioned you had a couple bottoms. It sounds like, you know, that's very difficult. I've, I've, I've had friends who've tried to conceive and couldn't, and they wouldn't wish that on their worst enemies. But what were some other moments that you experienced other bottoms? Let's see, one of them. I had moved out to Idaho, you know, and I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. And it's not like it's a huge city where you can just go out to a coffee shop and make friends, you know. So I was making a couple of friends at the local bar because in my town we have a gas station and we have a bar, and that's that's it, that's it. So, hmm. so I went to the bar. Okay. And I, I, yeah, exactly. So I went there and I, I met a couple of people and I invited them over to my house to have like a bonfire party and barbecue and everything and. Throughout the night, it had progressed, and I actually ended up tripping um, over something by the fire pit, and I actually fell in with the, into the fire pit, and I burned 10% of my body and was ended up life-flighted down to the University of Utah. So it's definitely, like, stuff like that. Like, I have a couple of things where, you know, things like that happen, and any normal person would look at that and be like, you know what, maybe you have a problem. Maybe you shouldn't be drinking. But, you know, I didn't. Wow, I I'm, I'm just trying to so, digest this yeah. story. Did uh, you know it, it, or it could have been the person had their leg out and you genuinely tripped over their leg into the fire. Which, which one do you think it was? Oh, I I tripped over because I had not cleaned up the area very well. I had left like my ex husband's like he had something out there that he was working on and I had left it there and I tripped over it and I had fallen in. So 
Gotcha. Yeah. But maybe had you not been drinking, you would have removed whatever project your ex-husband was working on. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I didn't. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. I, I, I see the correlation. But 10% of your body, uh, how long did it take to recuperate from that? A couple months. I was in the hospital for, I think it was, I think it was a month. I don't know. I was really blurry. I was on a lot of pain medicine, which of course, when I got out of the hospital, I totally drank with, you know, like, cause that sounds like a great idea, but it was like, it was on my face. I had probably about a quarter of my face burnt in my ear. Um, and then one of my arms was completely like the backside of it was burnt. And then, um, on my back, I had a couple of spots and, yeah, it took took a couple months to recover from it. But what's amazing, though, is that I don't really have hardly any scarring from it. So I kept myself very grateful for that. I do have, like, a couple, but, like, I know that they're there, but not, not anybody does because, you know, unless they're looking for it, I guess. Yeah, though, that's so. that's amazing. And, and after that, uh, what happened after that? You said you came out with pain meds and probably had another you know, another vice going on there. Did you continue to drink yeah. while taking the pain meds? Oh, of course, you know, <laughs> I'm an addict. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, um, they had me on, cause you had to sit there and do debridements every day, twice a day. Just basically you take the bandages off and scrub the burns. And so they would have me on morphine and oxycotton both that I would have to take twice a day. Um, they were, I don't even remember what milligrams they were on, but, they were pretty high, and then throughout the days when I wasn't doing debriefments, they had me on uh, Vicodin. Hmm. So it was it was pretty pumpful. And then, like I think it was about three months after the burn uh, the burn happened, that I had gone to my doctor to go get a refill on my prescription, and he had looked at me and he looked at my burns and he's like, "You don't need this anymore. Why are you still taking this?" And he would not refill my prescription, and so I went off of them like cold turkey. It was horrible. Hmm. It was so uncomfortable, and but I did it. You know, I went off of them. Of course, I drank. You know, so that made it a little bit easier. Sure. <laughs> but it was definitely not something that I enjoyed at all. It was. I was nauseous. I was sick. I shook. It was. It was a really bad experience getting off of the pain meds. But I did it. But you know, I still kept on drinking. So. Yeah, that's a breath of fresh air hearing the medical professional saying, look, you don't need these anymore. I'm not going to prescribe these because oftentimes it's it's the opposite is what we hear. You know, how did you do it? How, how did you, you know, seven months ago, how did you quit drinking? Well, I listened to podcasts a lot, which I'd actually gotten into podcasts because I'd gone online to do a search for like any sort of online group because I had been to AA back when I was a teenager, like, for a month or something. I think I got a month under my belt at one time. And then after that month, like on the 30 day mark, I went out and was like, never mind. Now I know I can do it. You know, and I went on for another 10 years drinking. But I live in a small town, you know, where it's, you know, you have a bar and you have a gas station. There's like one AA meeting here in our county once a week. Wow. And that's it. And it's a real small yeah, town. Yeah, it's really small. So, I didn't have a whole lot of options for meetings. Now I go, I drive an hour up to Pocatello and go to meetings in the city. So, and I try to do that at least three times a week, try and get up there, but it does take three hours out of my day at least to get up there and go. So, but at the beginning, I 
did it at home. I had joined a group, an online group. I don't know. Can I say the group on here? That, Absolutely. If it's a resource that's helpful to your recovery, yeah, let's do it. It's called Club Soda, and they're actually based out of UK. And they do a lot of, um, they have a kind of a different approach to quitting. It's not the AA way or anything, but it definitely helped me, especially just to have people to go on there all the time and, and talk to. And through them, I found like a lot of other resources like podcasts, your podcast. Um, and then, of course, I started listening to your podcast and I joined Cafe RE. And now that's like my go-to group. I mm-hmm. like it. It's a lot more small and personable, so you don't feel quite so lost in the commotion. Everybody's really awesome there. But Is Club um, Soda like a forum, I, or is it also a Facebook group? It's a Facebook group, but they also have a website where they do they do a lot of activities in the U.K. They have sober bars that they go to. Yeah. Where they just, yeah, so they do quite a bit out there. But, I mean, I live in Idaho, so that, that's quite a, quite a drive, <laughs> you know, to do any meetups. So mm-hmm. I had to try and find some some groups that live, you know, that were closer in my area. And, you know, of course, and then I found out you live in Bozeman, Montana, and I'm like, wow, that's pretty close. So I'm sure that if they have any meetups anytime, like, I could probably, like, that's a little bit more feasible than London, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, and we we talked before I hit the record button is I drive – I drive to Colorado sometimes for the 15 going south in Salt Lake City, and it'd be really fun to meet in person, grab a cup of coffee, and that's one of the best parts of doing Recovery Elevators. I've, I've been able to do this several times across the country. It's so cool putting faces to names and expanding my recovery network. And so you just oh, yeah. jumped right into the online communities, it sounds like, right? Yes, yeah. And I, I went through, you know, the online groups and everything and podcasts and I did that and I just got involved with the therapist as well. So and then she went on maternity leave and I was like, Great, this is awesome. So all like <laughs> all of a sudden all of my in person support went out the window and all I had left was just like just the online and no in person support except for my husband. My husband quit drinking with me, which was awesome. Oh, I love him and he's totally supportive. I don't know how people can do it when their husbands or, you know, their significant others are still doing it. But is, anyway, is your husband, was he just doing it out of support or does he also struggle with alcohol? He's, well, a little adult. I think he began it as just the support, you know, but I kind of made it clear that this is my journey. Your journey is your journey. And, you know, you need to be doing this for you or, or not at all, you know, or it's just not going to work. I don't think. And so he, he kind of struggled with it a bit. We have different sober dates. I think he's a month behind me. And he finally got into his own thing, and he's working on his own stuff. And you know, we talk about it a little bit, but I try to make sure that we keep it kind of separate. If that makes sense. Yeah, Just I've trying to. I've heard that repro- approach before with couples who live together who have gotten sober. Is is you know, it's very clear that you get sober for yourself, not the significant other. And number two is, you know, your your programs are almost sacred, and you don't really need to talk about it and it, it, it's good to talk about it but yeah, you don't need to like share you don't need to do the same program is what I'm getting at yeah like we share with each other if we feel like it but you know we also we don't step in each other's recovery you know so his recovery is his recovery if he wants to share something with me I'm like that's awesome that's so great and uh, you know we'll go on you know we'll go to meetings together sometimes and then we also go to meetings separately and I think that that's a big thing is, you know you do it together but you also it's your own journey. So. Yeah. And, and when did you realize, Coral, in your early sobriety that you're saying, you don't think you could ever do this, but when did the shift of thinking go from, I can't do this to, you know, I think I can do this. Was it a week, two weeks, a month? 
I think it was at the 90 day mark because I hadn't, I hadn't been going to meetings. Like I said, I hadn't been, I'd been just doing the, the online support groups and everything. And my therapist, well, and, and she went out on maternity leave. And so I actually, I went on to the online cafe group in trouble, basically. Like I, I had just gotten turned down for a job promotion, which I really, really thought that I had in the bag. Mm-hmm. And I just, I had felt like that feeling of like wanting to jump out of your own skin, you know, and I at home alone and I'm like, this is not good. And so I finally just got in my car and I'm like, that's it. I'm driving an hour into the city and I'm going to a meeting and I'm going to give this a try. And that was on day 89. And, you know, I came out of that meeting and I'm like, why have I not been doing this? Like this should have been a priority. Like I should have been making it a priority. Yes, it's a long drive, but there is no replacing that in-person meeting, you know, there's no replacing that, like having actual people that you talk to face-to-face as a support, you know, it's definitely irreplaceable, I think. You mentioned the word priority. Where would you hold priority for sobriety? Where would that, what priority would that be in your life? I would say definitely number one, because if you don't have it as number one, I mean, everything else, it doesn't matter. Like everything else is gone. Especially mm-hmm. with my history, <laughs> using, yeah. it, it would be it would they would all just disappear. I mean, not disappear, but I would lose everything. You know, I've gotten so close to losing everything, and I have lost everything before. You know, before I had a a family and everything, I've lost everything before. Back when I was a teenager, many times, literally everything except the clothing on my back. So, you know, the older that I get, the more that I get to lose, and I just know that if it's not my number one priority, that would be gone. And what have you learned most about yourself in sobriety, Coral? I'm still learning that. <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> in the middle of my my fourth step, so you know I'm I'm anxious to keep going with it. I just sat down with my sponsor and went over my list of resentments, and so it's just eye opening. And I'm still having my eyes opened with it. But the more that I learn about me. It's just interesting, I guess, because <laughs> mm-hmm. they say that you lose, like once you start using, you stay at that emotional age, right? Like I started using at age 15, so there's a lot of times where I catch myself having that emotional 15-year-old come out, you know, and I'm like, I'm in my 30s. That's a little bit ridiculous, you know? <laughs> yeah. So the more I try and pay attention to that, it's, it's helpful to me because, you know, I'm not that person anymore and I need to continue calling myself on that. Nice. And you, with seven months of sobriety, you probably still experience cravings. What do you do when they come? It's really bad. I eat sugar a lot, which is something that's on my next to-do list. (laughs) But in the last seven months, I've actually quit alcohol and cigarettes and caffeine, all of them. So Whoa, that's a pretty big list right there. So yeah, sugar can wait. Yes, that's exactly I will eat that cupcake. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I do uh, indulge on the sugar quite a bit, but I've been getting into meditation quite a bit more. I, you know, when those cravings hit, I'll, I do a hypnosis. I go and I hit a meeting and then sometimes I just go and I, I work out. I run on my treadmill, you know, cause that, that craving is, is, they say you'll lose the desire to stop, right? Mm-hmm. Which is very true. The desire is gone. The cravings, however, still pop up. So the longer that I can, you know, go work out, distract myself until that craving subsides is great. And so, yeah, sugar, working out, burn off calories from the sugar, obviously. <laughs> and yeah. then meetings. Yeah. There you go. 
And how has your sobriety impacted relationships in the last seven months? My my husband and I get along a lot better. It's amazing how much we look at our marriage that we were getting these stupid arguments. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And it all was because we were drinking. And we'd wake up the next morning and be like, what was that? <laughs> I don't know. You know? <laughs> yeah. And we don't have that happen anymore. You know, when we have a disagreement, like, we don't turn it into an argument. We sit down and talk about it. And it, it takes a lot of the emotion, like the charged emotion, out of it. And we're able to be a little bit more logical and work things out better, I guess. And then with my extended family, I'm closer with them because I was raised Mormon, so they're all Mormon, but they don't drink, and I've always been kind of like the black sheep, you know? Mm-hmm. So the fact that I don't drink anymore, they're loving it. They're just like, yay, we have our Welcome back, back, Coral. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So that's definitely cool. Nice. And walk us through a typical day in your recovery from start to finish, morning to night. Well, I wake up, I say a prayer, and then if I'm working days, I go to work and do my recovery at night, which is driving out to Pocatello and at least three times a week and going to a meeting up there. And um, if it's not a meeting day, then I sit home and I spend the time with my family and my son and enjoy the fact that I'm present all the time. I'm working at night and I, you know, I wake up and I go to my meeting in the daytime and get that all done and, um, and then go to work and live my serenity prayer quite a bit at work. I just repeat it to myself sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It gets stressful, but yeah, just getting up and doing it over and over again and, and continuing, continuing learning, I guess, is a big thing. So it's always a process. Always a process over and over again, one day at a time. And Coral, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Like I said, I have a lot of those, so it's hard to choose. But I would have to, if I was to choose one out of the hat, I'd say the fire pit, because I already talked about that one. It was, it was a pretty big deal. I still get made fun of it. And that was like 10 years ago that that happened. So, yeah. Yeah, that one sounds quite brutal. And number two, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating you can't really control your drinking? I've had quite a few of those as well. I would say one of them was probably when I was a teenager. I I had gotten out and gone drinking. I was living in Eugene, Oregon at the time, and I had gone to the Saturday market, and I was drinking, and I was mixing it with, like, marijuana and stuff, and I completely blacked out. I don't even remember everything. I guess I was running around screaming at people, and I don't remember any of it. My friend, like, grabbed me and threw me in her truck, and we went back to her house, but... You know, I wake up from that blackout, and they tell me what happened, and I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <You> shit. <know? laughs> oh, shit. So, and then, but you know what? It didn't do anything because I continued on doing it. So Yeah. It yeah. rarely does, but still. The memory's, yeah, the memory's right. always there. And then what's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Coral? Oh, I'm anxious to finish this fourth step. Um, I'm almost done with it, and to continue on with these steps because I know that they just make you grow as a person and being able to look at everything like why why you've done what you've done you know and once you learn why it's a lot easier to fix it and to not be caught in that situation again and then also to be able to help other people that have been in that situation Mm -hmm. I'm not there yet like I don't I'm still trying to figure myself out (laughs) but one day I will 
feel confident enough, I think, to be able to help somebody else that was in my shoes. Absolutely. And then next question, what is your favorite resource in recovery? You mentioned podcasts in plural. You know, what are some other podcasts you listen to and some resources that you like? Uh, I listen to this one. I listen to Share, the Share podcast with Omar Pinto. Mm-hmm. And then I listen to the Bubble Hour. That one was actually my first one that I started getting into. It was, it was brought up on the Club Soda site. And they're all women. And I love my women's meetings. And um, I definitely enjoy that podcast quite a bit. But some other resources I, is my AA book, you know, and I can, my, my sponsor told me to read this like paragraph out of here every day, every day that I wake up. Can I, can I read it? Is that okay? Yeah. Let me guess. Is it like in the sixties? It's in, uh, it's on page 417 of the fourth edition actually. Oh yeah. Um, uh, is acceptance is the answer? Is that the one? Yes. Yeah. Read yes. it though. It's my, my favorite phrase ever. Read it. Okay. Uh, it says, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it's because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way that it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Until I accept my life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitude. So it's definitely, that's my favorite thing. Every day I read that and something about it doesn't happen by mistake. You know, nothing's happening by mistake. It may, <laughs> it may suck and I wish God would let me in on the, you know, on his plan a little bit more sometimes, but it's definitely not by mistake. So. Yeah, I love that excerpt from the book. In fact, my podcast episode 15 is called Acceptance Was Slash Is The Answer. And that was like a paramount shift in a meeting that I went to. And when I first heard that that part of the big book, it just the rubber started hitting the road. It was like, man, you're right. It doesn't matter what moment we are at in life. We have to find a way to accept it and and still find a little bit of comfort and happiness. And I, I absolutely love that we just covered that right now. And in, in regards to sobriety, Coral, what's the best advice you've ever received? That you do act like the five people that you are around the most mm-hmm. and that you also need to make sure that you are one of somebody else's five and that you need to make sure that you're a good example on them as well. Yep. You're the average my... of the five people you hang out with the most. I've heard that a lot and it's always rang true for me. The next question, Coral, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? Well, I think that if you're thinking about quitting drinking and think you have a problem, that should be a big sign, honestly. <laughs> if you think, hey, maybe I might want to slow down, maybe you should take a look at it a little bit closer, and that there are so many people that, that have already done that. done that. I've been there, and it's not as scary as it can sound. And you can still have fun, you know, when you're sober. Like, I used to drink to feel fun, you know, and I actually find that I, I have a lot more fun sober because I can remember it and I'm not as sloppy as I was. I would be drinking and I would think that I would be cool when in actuality I was not cool. I was like drunk and sloshing around and uh-huh. a complete wreck, but I thought that I was totally fine, you know? So if you think you have an issue with it, like you might, there are quizzes online that you can Google try to see what stage you're in as far as um, your alcohol use and everything. And just to be honest about it, to be honest with yourself. 
You're right. I think it's that simple. You've heard me say it on the podcast before, too. You might be an alcoholic. If you've ever wondered you have a drinking problem, and I remember taking one of those quizzes, questionnaires, my sophomore year in college, and I got like four out of 20 right. And I was like, oh, four out of 20, that's that's great. You know, I'm no way. And then, you know, you click to the answer page, and it's like, yeah, you are an alcoholic. I was like, no way. You know, looking back, I was, but I was in complete denial for another five to eight to 10 years after that. So it really doesn't have to be that hard, the, the diagnosis that we give ourselves. And, and before we depart, Coral, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you go and you fall in your fire pit and burn your whole body and you still blame it on the saw that was by the fireplace, like even 10 years later. You're still blaming it on something else instead of your al- alcoholism. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a great way to start my day. Thank you so much, Coral. Thank you, Paul. I drank for happiness and became unhappy. I drank for joy and became miserable. I drank for social ability and became argumentative. I drank for sophistication and became obnoxious. I drank for friendship and made enemies. I drank for sleep and woke up tired. I drank for strength and felt weak. I drank for relaxation and got the shakes. I drank for courage, but became afraid. I drank for confidence and became doubtful. I drank to make conversation easier and slurred my speech. I drank to feel heavenly and ended up feeling like hell. Somebody sent me this excerpt. This is from an author unknown, but after reading that, it resonated with me. I drank for all those reasons and experienced all those effects. So why do we really drink? That's a great question, Recovery Elevator. But I can tell you that's why I haven't drank for over two and a half years. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>